Ephesians and chapter 4. Later on in our service, we will be continuing our studies in the letter to the Romans and chapter 12. But it's always important for us to allow the scripture to interpret itself. So we need to find passages in the Bible that help us to understand the particular passages that we are studying. And so in Ephesians 4, we have some very similar words to those that we will find in Romans 12. So I'd like to read to you from Ephesians chapter 4 and beginning at the first verse. Ephesians 4 and beginning at verse 1. Let's hear the word of God. As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it said, says, when he ascended on high, he led captives in his train and gave gifts to men. What does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. It was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers, to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants, tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of men in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head, that is Christ, from him the whole body joined and held together by every supporting ligament grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. We thank God for the reading of his word. Well, can I take you to the passage this evening, which is Romans and chapter 12. Romans and chapter 12, and I'd like to read verses 3 to 8. Romans chapter 12 and verses 3 to 8. Let's hear the word of God. For by the grace given me, 
I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith God has given you. Just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we who are many form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given us. If a man's gift is prophesying, let him use it in proportion to his faith. If it is serving, let him serve. If it is teaching, let him teach. If it is encouraging, let him encourage. If it is contributing to the needs of others, let him give generously. If it is leadership, let him govern diligently. If it is showing mercy, let him do it cheerfully. We thank God for his word. How we think about the church will influence and affect everything that we do. If we have an unbalanced view of the church, we will stumble and will cause other people to stumble too. So how are we to think of the church? Is the church perhaps a club to which you belong? Is it an organisation? Is it just a sort of addition to my personal walk with God? Something that will help me along the way? Is it similar to other groups in the world that I might belong to, but simply with a religious emphasis? Now, if you think of the church in any of those ways, then you are going to act in a certain way. Clubs can be joined and left. You don't have to attend every time a club meets. Organisations change over time. There's a leadership changes and the organisations can adapt to the changing circumstances around them. Groups can be very useful while they meet your need, but as soon as they don't, you can leave and you can join another group. Is that what the church is? Is it simply somewhere that we go? You know, we, well, people can't really go anywhere at the moment, can they? But some people go to a gardening club and other people go to a historical society and, well, I go to church. Uh, is it just like that, or, or is it more than that? Well, it's more than that, isn't it, when we read the Bible? In fact, the Bible elevates the church to a very high level indeed. Because the church, according to the Bible, is not a human organization at all. It was never created or thought up by a human mind. The church is God-given. According to the Lord Jesus himself, the church is God-given. Jesus is the founder of the church, and he says, I will build my church. Matthew 16, verse 18. That's significant, isn't it? The church doesn't even belong to us. 
We sometimes say my church, and we know what we mean by that. We mean the church to which I belong, the church to which I go. But it's not my church, it's not your church, it's the church of Jesus Christ. I will build my church, says the Lord Jesus. Again, in Ephesians 5 and verse 25, we read, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. The church is not an it. The church is a she, it's her. Why? Because the church, again from Ephesians, is the bride of Christ. Christ is the husband and the church is his bride. And Christ loved the church. Not only did he love the church, but he actually gave himself for her. He gave his life for the church. That's emphasized again in Acts chapter 20 and verse 28. Acts 20, 28 says the church of God, again, see it there, the church of God, that comes up many times. Church is not a human organization. It is something divinely instituted. And even the word instituted doesn't sound right. It's a divine creation. It's a divine provision. The church of God And then the next phrase is this, which he bought with his own blood. That's significant, isn't it? Acts 20, 28. The church of God, which he bought with his own blood. Clearly, when it speaks of God there, it's referring to the Lord Jesus. His is the only blood of the triune God that was shed and his blood was shed for the church. Now, that immediately makes us think of the church in very different ways to how I was describing earlier. It's not an organization, it's not a club, it's not a human invention. It's not even a convenience to just help you along in your own personal walk with God. The church is God-given and purchased by Christ and belongs to Jesus. Is that how you think of the church? It's very easy, isn't it, to look around ourselves when we come to church. Again, we talk about coming to church. There's a sense in which that's true because we're coming to meet with the church. The church is gathered together. But we come to a building in order to find the church within the building, or at least part of the church. So it's easy to look round, isn't it, at the church and to get a very prejudiced view. We don't look very much like a God-given, blood-bought, divinely growing group of people, do we? It's very easy to become disillusioned and to say, well, is that really what the church is? These people that I know reasonably well and I meet with week by week, are we really that special? Have we really been bought with the precious blood of Jesus? Well, the answer is yes, we have. We have. So Paul, in Romans chapter 12, has told us that we need to think about the church like a body. Lovely thing about that picture is that we've all got a body. So it's very easy for us to picture it like that, isn't it? We've all got a body. There are other pictures of the church that may be not quite so easy for all of us to picture. When you think about the church being a bride, 
It's not perhaps quite so easy. We know what a bride is, but well, at least half of us are never going to be a bride, and, and, and others of us really can't appreciate what that feels like. But what about, what about the body? That's easy, isn't it? We've got a body. Everybody's got a body, and we know what that is like. Now, what he does when he speaks about the church being a body is he emphasizes unity, first of all. The body is one. It's one body. You've only got one body. You're not lots of individual bits that are disconnected. You're actually one body. There's a unity, and your body works as a body. It doesn't always work properly, of course. There are always creaks and groans, and there are always pains and so on, and and that's true for everybody. But nonetheless, even with those creaks and groans, you're still a body, and you still work as a unity. But there's also union. Not just unity, not just one body, but there's a union of parts, isn't there? Because all the parts of the body work together. And again, Paul emphasizes that in this passage. But he goes a step further, doesn't he, to talk about communion. The fact that all the members of the church belong to everybody else. There is a communion in the body of Christ. Now... Having emphasized that, that union, that unity, that communion, because we're a body, Paul now goes on to speak about the diversity, the other side of the same coin. He does exactly the same in Ephesians 4. The first few verses of that chapter speak about the one body. There is one church, there's one baptism, there's, there's one faith, there's one God and Father of all. One, 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 all the way through. But then he says, but to each of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. So we are one body, yes, but we are many parts. And that's also very important for us to understand. When we are transformed by the renewing of our mind, when we come to know Christ through his mercy and grace and love, we need to have a new understanding of the church. We need to think about what the church is and our part in the church, especially if we want the church to grow and also if we want to benefit from all the great blessings that the church is intended to be for us. So let's look at these verses, particularly verses 6 to 8 of Romans 12. And these are the verses in which the Apostle Paul speaks about the diversity of gifts within the church. And the first thing that he tells us is that each member of the church has a vital part to play. Each member of the church has a vital part to play. Verse 6 in the NIV says, we have different gifts according to the grace given us. I think the ESV is a little bit more powerful than that. The ESV, English Standard Version, says this, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. I think that's very good. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. See, that em- that's a right emphasis in, in the verse. 
we already have these gifts, and these gifts differ according to the grace that we have been given. So every believer has been given grace. Now you might say, wait, well, yes, I know about this, because we're always talking about grace, aren't we? We're talking about the fact that we're saved by grace, and that it's not by works, it's by grace that we are saved. And we understand grace to be the great love of God that's undeserved and unearned, but the love of God that is shown to us in mercy in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now that is true, that is saving grace. And everybody who's ever been saved has been saved by the grace of God. But that's not the particular grace that Paul has in mind here. The grace that he has in mind here uh, differs from one person to another. Um, And you you look back, for instance, at what he says in verse 3. For by the grace given me, he says, I say to every one of you, do not think yourself more highly than you are. Now, he's talking more there about the grace that God gives to make us suited for the particular role that he has for us within his church. So Paul was given grace to be an apostle, for instance. And that was his particular grace that he was given. It was a gift of God. And so it is with everyone in the church. We all have gifts. Grace gifts is the word that is used there. Grace gifts. You might be familiar with the word charismata. Over a few decades ago, it became a great word of contention within the church. It ought not to. It simply means a grace gift, a gift of God that he has given by his grace. In other words, God gives us grace to equip us to live for him as part of his body, the church. It's very tempting, isn't it, to see these grace gifts as only belonging to certain people in the church. And to say, well, you know, other people have got these wonderful gifts, but I haven't got any gifts at all. Well, that's not true. It's also, I think, very tempting to link these gifts with particular roles in the church. So we see, for instance, in these verses, that there is mention of the word serve. And we might immediately think, oh, yes, deacons serve. And so they're obviously the people in the church who've got the gift of serving. Now, it would be wrong for us to restrict it to deacons. They're not the only people in church who have the gift of serving. And again, we might look at leading in, uh, in verse 8, leadership or ruling. We might say, oh, yeah, well, that, that refers to elders in the church. So they're obviously the ones who are the leaders in the church. So that must be the gift that they've got. Well, again, it would be wrong to restrict it, even that word, to restrict it to just elders. And then teach. If a gift is teaching, oh, you might say, well, yeah, that, Sunday school teachers have got a gift of teaching, haven't they? Preachers have a gift of, of teaching and so on. Those who take Bible studies. Again, what we're doing is we're restricting these words. And Paul, in this passage, is not linking these gifts to particular officers in the church. These gifts are given by God, and we have them. And we have them, as it were, scattered around in the church, having grace gifts 
according to the grace that has been given to us. So no one should say, I'm no use in the church. I'm not really important in the church. There's really nothing that I can do. I don't contribute in any way to the life of the church. Now, that is completely wrong. And it is not doing what we've been told to do earlier. Do you remember earlier in verse 3? Do not think of yourself more highly than you ought. No, that's true. So we shouldn't say, oh, I've got wonderful gifts. I'm so gifted. The church should be very glad to have someone like me with all of my wonderful gifts. Surely they're going to recognize what an incredible Christian I am and, and how, how valuable I am and how privileged they must be to have me. Now, now that is thinking yourself, of yourself more highly than you are, isn't it? But on the other hand, we mustn't think of ourselves into lower view, an unrealistic view, to say, oh, there's nothing I can do, I'm not important. Now, we're told to think of ourselves with sober judgment in verse 3. Rather, think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith God has given you. God has given you a measure of faith. Again, it's not saving faith there. It's the ability to live and to serve God in faith. Everyone has a gift. And the church will only grow as each part does its work. That's part of the reason why we read Ephesians in chapter 4, because there is that lovely verse at the end of Ephesians 4 and verse 16. Ephesians 4 and verse 16. One of my favorite phrases in a whole of the scripture. Verse 16, from him, that's from Jesus, from Christ, the whole body joined and held together by every supporting ligament grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Isn't that lovely? Every supporting ligament. I didn't know I had ligaments until I tore them. But once you tear a ligament, you know very well that you've got them. And you know how important they are too. Ligaments, they just get on with the job, don't they? They support you. But when you tear them or when you pull them, you may twist an ankle, for instance, and it is agony. You suddenly discover that that little thing that you don't really think about much is of vital importance to the body. And Paul says that's what we all are. We're all supporting ligaments and we are held and joined together. And more than that, he says, the church grows and builds itself up in love. And notice his last phrase, as each part does its work. As each part does its work. Not just some parts, but each part. So each member of the church has a vital part to play. But come back to Romans 12 with me for a second point. Each member of the church is specially gifted to contribute to the whole. Each member of the church is specially gifted to contribute to the whole. 
Paul gives us a list of grace gifts, charismata, grace gifts. He give us a, gave, gives us a list here. It's not an exhaustive list. It's a selection of the gifts that are given to the church. There are many other lists in the Bible. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 has nine gifts. And for the most part, they're completely different from this list. Ephesians chapter 4 that we read together, well, that's got four different gifts mentioned there. 1 Peter chapter 4 has three gifts mentioned, hospitality, serving, and speaking. So you see, uh, as Peter puts it, God's God's, uh, grace is administered in various forms. That's how Peter puts it in 1 Peter chapter 4. God's grace is administered in the church in many different forms. It is multifaceted, multicolored. It is so varied in, in its wonderful diversity, really. There's a beautiful diversity within the church, as colorful as a springtime garden. So we come back to Romans 12, and you've got to know that this is just a a selection of the gifts that there are. It's not everything. I would hazard to say that in in the Bible, there probably isn't an exhaustive list, although we have to be careful if we're going to add things that are not in the Bible at all. But the point is clear. There are gifts that God has given. So in Romans chapter 12, we, we have seven. Let's look at them. The first one is prophesying. Immediately, we might be put off and say, well, ah, there's one that doesn't have anything to do with us, does it? Verse 6, if a man's gift is prophesying, let him use it in proportion to his faith. Prophesying. What's prophesying? Well, we we do know what prophesying is, don't we, from the Bible, the Old Testament and the New Testament. There are prophets, aren't there, in the Old Testament? There are prophets in the New Testament as well. Who are these people? Well, they are those who spoke under the immediate influence of the Spirit of God. They were people who delivered divine communication relating to doctrinal truths, to personal duty, to future events, as the case may be. That's a definition that Charles Hodge gives to prophesying. I think that's that's right. In its strictest form, that's exactly what prophesying is. Those who spoke under the immediate influence of the Holy Spirit and delivered some divine communication relating to truth or duty or future events, whatever the particular need might be. Well, if that is how we're going to strictly understand prophesying, we'd have to say that that is a gift that is no longer given to the church since the conclusion of the New Testament, because we have all the inspired word of God that we possibly need. But is that, is that all that's being said here? In a lesser way, surely we can use this phrase for someone who speaks a word that has the clear evidence of God's voice. Not inspired, not infallible, but still the word of God to a particular situation. I'm thinking about the ability that God gives some people to be able to take his word and to so explain it and proclaim it that it speaks directly into our situation. And we say, well, 
we heard God's voice today. Now, it's not wrong, is it, to say we heard God's voice today because we're hearing his word. We're not hearing it from a prophet with a capital P, as in the Old Testament or New Testament, but we're certainly hearing prophesying in the sense of telling the word of God and speaking into a situation. I remember, well, in the 20th century, there were two men who I remember being described as prophets and apostles. There were various pamphlets, and after they died, uh, these were these were distributed, and, and the little subtitle, Prophet and Apostle of the 20th Century. And at the time, I really, I resented that and felt that was wrong. But, of course, it's wrong in the sense of the Bible's prophet and the Bible's apostle, with a capital P and a capital A. But what about a little P and a little A? Those two men were A.W. Tozer and Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. And who's going to dispute the fact that those two men, particularly in the 20th century, were greatly used of God to speak exactly the word that was needed to the people of God at that time. They had a prophetic quality about them. Way back in the uh, 16, uh, very, very early 1600s, a book was published called The Art of Prophesying by a man called William Perkins. And he subtitled it, A Treatise Concerning the Sacred and Only True Manner and Method of Preaching. So sometimes this word prophesying is used for preaching. In that sense, I think we can understand this gift. The second one that Paul uses is serving. Serving. Again, verse 7. If it is serving, let him serve. We are all to serve one another, aren't we? John chapter 13, the Lord Jesus washes the disciples' feet. And he says, I, your Lord and Master, have done this to you. You need to do this to one another. And he's saying that we've all got to serve one another. That's really important. But some people have a particular gift, a particular aptitude. Enable them to, to meet the needs of other people, to serve them, and to serve them in, in body and in, in soul in a wonderful way. They see the needs of other people. They see what needs doing. And they get on and they do it. And they have a particular gift of serving. And the church needs many people with the gift of serving, don't, doesn't it? Teaching is the next gift. Verse 7, if it is teaching, let him teach. Teaching is a gift. It's not something that you can be trained to do. It is a gift that is given by God. Now, we often say in, in the secular world of teaching that, that teachers are born, not made. And there is a certain truth about that. You can train someone up to help them to use their particular gift of teaching in the world. But nonetheless, there's a sense that you've got to be born with that ability and then you can develop and hone it. But absolutely and certainly in the church, teaching is a gift that God gives, the ability to understand God's word, the ability to make it clear and to teach it often to very young children, to break it up very small and to be able to teach in a little Sunday school class perhaps. Uh, And for older people as well and within the church, this gift of teaching being able to explain the meaning and the relevance of the scriptures. Now, in order to do that, it needs painstaking and hard work of studying God's word. 
but some have this gift and are able to teach different ages within the church. And we need teachers in the church. Encouraging is the next one, verse 8. If it is encouraging, let him encouraging. What is encouragement? What well, is the ability to appeal to the heart and to the feelings rather than to the mind? There is an element that you address the mind, but teaching really addresses the mind. But encouraging someone really gets to the heart, doesn't it? It, it warms the heart. It strengthens someone. It, you're able to build someone up in their faith and in their love. You have the right thing to say at just the right moment. You come alongside someone in their time of need and you just lift them. And all of us have benefited from people in the church who are simply encouragers and they can't help themselves. Every time they speak to you, they'll encourage you and they'll go out of their way to maybe find a way of keeping you going, especially when you're at those deep and dark places in life. So encouragement is such an important gift, isn't it? But it's a gift. Giving is the next one. If it is contributing to the needs of others, let him give generously. Giving. Again, everyone in the church is to give. There is a general sense, just like we're all supposed to serve, so we are all to give as well. It's not that some people give and other people just say, well, I've got nothing to give. We've all got something to give, and we should give to support the life of the church. But there are some people who have a special gift of giving. Perhaps they have been particularly blessed by God materially. They have much, but they also have a big heart, and their big heart enables them to give. It's a God-given gift of grace, the gift of giving. And when someone gives willingly with a pure motive, that is a really wonderful thing, isn't it? And again, most of us here, if not all of us, have benefited from someone with a gift of giving who has met a need that we had. Perhaps them not really knowing that we had that need, but the Lord put it in their hearts and they were given that wonderful gift. And of course, it's got to be willing. It's got to be pure motive. It's got to be secret, hasn't it? It's not something to boast about, to tell everybody how much you've given and who you've given to. No, it's a secret thing. Not letting the right hand know what the left hand is doing. Leading is the next gift. If it is leadership, let him govern diligently. Making sure that the church follows the scripture in its teaching and in its life. Making sure that, that the church is led well according to the word of God. It's an essential gift to have. For eldership, we said we don't necessarily link all these, but if elders must certainly have this gift of leadership, it's part of the work of the church to lead the church in a godly way and to lead in a gentle fashion, in a servant fashion, but nonetheless to lead. And the final gift is the gift of showing mercy. What does it mean to show mercy? Well, it means to be compassionate, doesn't it? To have compassion for those who are hurting. Perhaps uh, the outworking of a gift of, of showing mercy would be visiting the sick, caring for the needs of, of others, and not getting weary in doing that. It's very easy to get weary, isn't it? It'd be very easy to become downhearted 
at the, just the weight of the needs that are all around us. And sometimes it's easy for that to overwhelm us, which is why we mustn't get weary in doing it, but we're told that we must do it cheerfully. We must keep cheerful, even as we are showing others mercy. And that's not easy, but some people have a particular gift of that. Now, all of these and every other gift a church needs are given by God. We all have something that we have been given. And it's not given just for us. When God gives his gifts, he doesn't just give it to you so that you can benefit from it and you can enjoy it. If you think about every one of these gifts, they are totally useless if you remain on your own and you never have any contact with any other Christian. You can't use any of these gifts without being in contact with other Christians because it's within the body of Christ, the church, that these gifts are exercised and are used. We all are able to do something. And that something that we're able to do is a gift from God so that we can contribute to the life of the whole church. We must do our part. So each member of the church is specially gifted to contribute to the whole. And the final point is this. The church grows when each member does their part. The church grows when each member does their part. Notice how the Apostle Paul adds this encouragement, doesn't he? Uh, Every time he mentions a gift. Verse 6. This is in the ESV. Um, The ESV says, Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them, if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts or encourages in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. In other words, Paul is saying, just do it. Just do it. Whatever you are able to do, do. I'm certain that we're not supposed to just search our hearts constantly and ask ourselves, what is my gift? What am I able to do? There's a sense in which when you become a Christian, you've just got to be yourself. And as you are yourself, renewed in heart and mind, there will be opportunities for you to do things. And sometimes other people will recognize what gift you have before you even do yourself. You've just got to go ahead and do what you do. You know, the old Nike advert had a little slogan, just do it. And that's really what Paul is saying, just do it. Get on with it Don't spend time just contemplating and worrying. Do I have this gift? Do I have the other? Whatever your hand finds to do, do it. And you will discover that God has gifted you in a unique way in order to serve the church. Don't wait to be asked either. Sometimes people wait. They say, well, if someone asks me to do something, I will do it. Well, I don't find that in the Bible anywhere. 
I don't find here in these passages, either in Romans or 1 Corinthians 12 or Ephesians 4 or 1 Peter 4, there's nowhere that it says you wait until somebody in authority in the church comes along and says to you, right, this is your gift, I want you to do this. It says do it, just do it. And as you work and as you serve, you will discover that the church is being built and you're part of it. And others will recognize it. And as you go along in the Christian life, so opportunities will come up. And sometimes you wonder, well, where did that come from? God will open up those opportunities. It's God's church, isn't it? So recognize the gift that God has given you. Ask him to enable you to use them, to open up those opportunities. And he will. Always be looking for ways to serve the church. We're a body. And there's always a need. Every part must do its work. Let's finish by saying why. Why must every part do its work? And for this, I want to go back to Ephesians 4 and just finish here. Why must we do our part? Ephesians 4 and verse 12. So that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. That's the aim. That's where we're going. We are reaching unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God. We're all growing up into Christ. We're all learning more and more about him until we attain that maturity, the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. That's what we're aiming for. And that's why we should do these things. That's why we should be building one another up like this. At the moment, we're severely restricted, aren't we? But there will be a time when the church will open up again fully. There will be a time when we are able to serve one another more fully and more closely than we can at the moment. And when that time comes, let's be ready to do our part. Let's be ready to work together for the well-being of the whole, to serve one another and to recognize that we have a vital part to play within this body of Christ. Well, may God grant us the ability to do that. I want to finish by reading hymn number 384 before we have our communion service. 384. Lord, from whom all blessings flow, perfecting the church below. Steadfast may we cleave to thee, love the mystic union be. Join our faithful spirits, join each to each and all to thine. Lead us through the paths of peace on to perfect holiness. Move and actuate and guide various gifts to each divide. Placed according to thy will, let us all our work fulfill. Never from our calling move, needful to each other prove. Use the grace on each bestowed, tempered by the art of God. Sweetly may we all agree, touched with softest sympathy. There is neither bond nor free, great nor servile, Lord, in thee. Love like death has all destroyed, rendered all distinctions void. Names and sects and parties fall. Thou, O Christ, art all in all. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, grant that we might 
recognize our value to one another. Grant that we might know ourselves to be part of the body. Give us opportunities to serve in whatever way you have specially equipped us to be able to offer ourselves as living sacrifices to you so that we might then serve one another, that we might see your church built up till we all reach unity in the faith of the Son of God and come to maturity in him. Amen.